episode drops so uh whether it is or whether it isn't valentine's day where you're listening to this now uh feel the love feel the love uh since i happened to notice that i was going to be dropping on valentine's day i tried to find something that was vaguely thematically on point and the closest i could come was musicals my friend uh, eric had asked specifically to do this list on musicals uh, we had to make the build the list together uh, it's kind of an uphill battle for me because as much as I can talk anyone's ear off about <laughs> Friday the 13th or Halloween I seem to run out of things to say about musicals <laughs> fairly quickly it's odd um, so I hope you're up for a little bit of a different and more challenging episode for me this week and uh, much thanks to my guest Eric Durgens for uh, putting up with this. As usual, if you're listening to the podcast, you know that there will be spoilers for the movies that we're talking about, as well as frequent course language, usually by me. So let's all move past that and get into Rank and Review episode 112, Musicals. Eric Jurgens, that is correct. Hello, <laughs> you're back on my podcast, uh, and you're we're skyping you from far off romantic Vancouver, British Columbia, yes. Canada, and this is going to be our Valentine's Day episode for 2018. So we're talking about musicals, and uh, as I was talking to you when I was setting up, if I if someone told me to say what's your least favorite genre of film. I guess I would have to say, honestly, it's the musical. <laughs> okay? Like, it's my least favorite. I mean, I love all kinds of film, like, and I don't really like to... I like to say I approach everything fairly openly, but yeah, I'm not a big musical guy. Some people don't like westerns. Some people don't like slasher movies. Some people don't like... I'm just... Uh, for me, the musical experience is live theater. I think being in the room with the actual performers makes it somehow special. You have to respect the room. You have to respect that this spectacle is being presented for you this night and uh, that there is a certain 
to get arty-farty about it, a certain magic to theater. And it's never expressed adequately in film, to my mind. It's never has been, to my mind. For me, if I'm going to see a musical film, I like my musicals to be funnier. I'm more of the little shop of horrors, Rocky Horror Picture Show sort of school of musical. Make me laugh, play it silly, right? So it was a little bit of an uphill climb for me. I don't mind doing this. I just don't want to hurt your feelings. So that's how I feel about musicals. Where do you land? Um, I'm almost starting to get afraid that we're going to agree too much on this episode. Okay. I'm actually in a very similar boat. I I don't... Uh, I guess I'm more pro the genre than you. I will get a little bit more naturally excited if something turns out to be a musical. But I also go in all the time very aware that... I very much strongly believe to each format their own and musicals are a, are a genre of film where I find, and we'll get into this with some of these movies, uh, the, the directors uh, and creative talent sometimes maybe need to be reminded that they're making a movie and not a play. Yeah. Um, and I would say that uh, it's like it's the number one thing that I look out for in musical adaptations. And not all of these are adaptations. Um, but more often than not, if something is a musical, usually it is adapted from uh, something that was originally a play, a which stage is adapted play. from a and novel, that's which is the adapted biggest from... pitfall in and of itself. Yeah, it's a yeah. There's a filtration thing that happens. You know, it starts with a book, then it becomes a play, then it becomes a musical, then it becomes a film of the musical. It's like a game of telephone after a point, right? Yes. <laughs> so you wanted to do this list. You approached me it about was... doing this, so. Two specific movies that we'll get to later that I really wanted to talk about, and then I, I threw out some suggestions to pad out to make it six, and then you were like, I've done some of those already, let's do yeah. these other ones, and then there's our list. And here it is. But uh, that because you requested, I assumed that you were a fan of the genre, so that I might hurt your feelings if I started talking shit about some of these movies. The way that I am is, no matter how much of a fan I am, I'll always, I always prefer a good conversation to making me feel good. Right. Well, we don't, we don't have to just constantly. Well, if we, it's like if we constantly disagree, it's boring, and if we constantly agree, it's boring. But usually, almost I would say ninety nine percent of the time on the show, all of the movies that we're talking about are from my personal collection. I'll have a physical copy of it. In this case, I own two of the six movies. So, like, I, I had to, uh, like, watch them on Netflix or, or, or find other ways of watching them. So, uh, a lot of them are just based on one view, and a lot of them I don't know a lot of the peripheral to. <laughs> so, I'm hoping you're going to help me with a little bit of maybe some of the left and right with these films. Because context helps, you know? It's sort of like with me and my horror movies. When I recognize that uh, they're paying homage to The Exorcist by making the clock stop, or when I notice that they're, you know, <laughs> hey, that's Jeffrey Combs. It's cool that they got Jeffrey Combs. Uh, the stuff that's going to be in these musicals tipping that way, I will not recognize <laughs> largely, right? Because <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is they're not for me, I guess. I will go see any of these shows as a live show if given the opportunity, because like I say, I think theater, it, musical theater is a different thing entirely, but for my film, I don't know, I have yet to be genuinely knocked over by a musical on film, and I say that including all of the movies on this list. 
Well, I can tell you we're going to disagree about one film at least. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Well, do we want to get started with that then, or is there anything else you wanted sure. to say by introduction? No, that introduction is good. I, uh, <laughs> I think this episode will speak for itself. I have a lot to say, just so you're braced. Okay. Well, we should tell the listeners uh, the six movies that we are going to review, okay? We're going to talk about Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. We're going to talk about Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. Uh, we're going to talk about the new adaptation of Les Miserables with uh, Wolverine and <laughs> Russell Crowe. And Gladiator. <laughs> and Gladiator. That's a, that's a much better way to put it. Um, we're going to talk about La La Land. We're going to talk about Into the Woods. And I'm missing one, Eric. What is the last film we're going to talk about? Across the Universe. Across the Universe. The Beatles the Jukebox Beatles musical. Jukebox musical from Julie Taymor. Thank you. I usually have the stack of movies in front of me, we see, but I don't own these ones. I have to pull up my All brain. these movies are conceptual. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do it. Let's do it. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her into your heart. Music's the only thing that makes sense anymore, man. Play it loud enough, keeps the demons at bay. So, I am a fan, I guess, to a certain degree, of Julie Taymor, the, the, the film's director of Across the Universe. And I'm definitely a fan of the Beatles. I think that, like, whether or not you're into, like, pop or rock music, you owe it to yourself to go through a Beatles phase. For a couple months of your life, get into the Beatles, <laughs> just to see what all the fuss is about. So, I have I actually... You actually... I was going to say, I actually got into the Beatles kind of late in life, uh, I mean, relatively for me. Um, I, for like the entirety of me growing up, just entirely dismissed them. Right. They seemed like a, a popular culture reference item that wasn't necessarily relevant to me. And then what happened was actually the Beatles rock band came out. And aside from the game itself, they put together a spectacular trailer and all it was is a it's a, a short uh, animation of like the Beatles starting in a bar in Liverpool and they sing some songs and the songs are intermeshed and it goes on and on until you get to but all of a sudden uh, the Beatles were cool <laughs> you get the end and like it's a two-minute trailer but I watched that and it, it was like a light bulb flashed in my head and I was like oh my god I get it I get, <laughs> the Beatles. I get their historical importance I get their genre importance yeah I understand what makes them talented musicians as it is and I've been on board ever since. Well, be a fan of the Beatles or not, but I would say that their film history is extremely rocky. There are defenders <laughs> of Hard Day's Night in that it's one of the first, quote, rock documentaries, but I don't find it an easy watch. Yellow Submarine, maybe if served with some kind of hallucinogenics, works out. And uh, I'm not against covering songs. Like you said, this is a jukebox musical. They're basically taking the Beatles' greatest hits, and they're going to use those songs to tell a story, question mark? 
And for what it's worth, I've actually done a live theatrical production of, uh, not not of the Beatles, of my own jukebox musical. It was from uh, Jonathan Colton's playlist. So I do have some firsthand experience of handling uh, this kind of a thing. So I, uh, I'm i going to speak some, from faux authority <laughs> as we come to this. Fair enough. I guess where I come down to is that I walk away from Across the Universe still a fan of Julie Taymor as a visual director. But I have to say, at 125 minutes, I think this feels more like a series of music videos than it does like a movie. 100%. Yep. Yay! Um, (laughs) There's there's so many shots... uh, and uh, I think I have this as, as a note somewhere, but there's this concept of uh, kill your darlings or murder your babies or whatever. When you're doing a creative work, sometimes you make a thing that on its own you love. Maybe a, a shot turned out really well for a movie or a song is you just really love it for a play. But when you look at it as a whole, that thing that you love might not fit into the creative work as well as you hoped it would. Uh, and I think there's a lot of darlings that could have gotten killed in this movie. There's a lot of songs that seem to exist because they're like, oh, well, we have to have I Am the Walrus, or we have to have I Want to Hold Your Hand, or, you know, that song has to exist. But viewed as scenes in a film, yeah. they don't push anything forward. I agree. You talk about I Am the Walrus, bon- Bono shows up for that sequence. And I think that by itself would have been a fine drug trip sequence, but it's followed mm-hmm. by the benefit of Mr. Kite and followed by uh, another one. I don't remember now, but... It, We're all singing in the lake, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it goes on and on and on. And then it's just, this is, this, is the, this is the stoner 60s, and this is the troubled political 60s, and this is Vietnam, and this is... And there's a vague romance going on with Jim Sturgis, but like... I don't feel a story here, and I certainly don't feel that connected to the characters. We're going to cover this a lot, but since we're doing Across the Universe first, it's up to that first for this. Uh, There is definitely a running theme in this episode of movies where people fall in love because the story needs them to fall in love and not because we watch them fall in love at all. Yes. And this is one of those things entirely. Uh, Jude looks over, and there's a cute blonde, and he's like, I guess I'm in love now. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's it. And you know, I think it's a shame because watching this movie, I actually realized there is a relationship that I am fully invested in. Uh, and it is the friendship between the character of Max and the character of Jude. Right. Uh, Max, I think, is the only character that has any ounce of charisma in the whole movie. He's not necessarily likable, but I can get engaged in his ups and downs of life. Uh, you feel, uh, you know, he's he's a self-righteous misfit. Uh, some of it, some of the hardships are his fault. Some of it are him being misunderstood. Uh, he comes from a pompous family and whatnot. Um, and then he gets drafted. And I found all of that to be incredibly engaging. Um, and my wife, Ashley, former guest of the show, mm-hmm. uh, also pointed out that when you look at the Beatles and their uh, their musical works. There's a lot of songs that have love in the title or or essentially about love. But the Beatles, like, they weren't romantics. They almost always were talking about, like, a general love for mankind. And the story of the Beatles is not a love story. It is a story about friends. Yeah. Um, And so watching this movie, I feel like there's this alternate movie that's so close of friendship that could have been made. And instead, it was this (laughs) half-hearted love story. 
Well, and musicals, I'm sorry to be dismissive, are largely about half-hearted love stories. Like, that happens. I get that. But I think if you're going to use the Beatles, like, there's, there is no other Beatles. There will be no other Beatles. Like, you, if you're going to use their playlist, use it to tell a story. And I've said it all the time on the podcast, I'm a story guy. And if I lose the story and I realize pretty quickly, okay, this isn't a story, this is a series of songs, then what do I hang on to? And that's when all of a sudden I start picking apart the flaws. Uh, the character of Prudence, okay? She's uh, homosexual in a time where it's not cool to be homosexual. And there's literally a scene in the film where they sing Hey Prudence to her while she's literally in a closet trying to get her to come out and be out in the world, both literally and figuratively. And it's so on the nose that I'm almost offended by it. You know, like... <laughs> and again, it does nothing for the the movie as a whole. Like, if, if I had watched that scene and it was like, hey, some college kids made this pro-homosexual uh, message music video with the Beatles' uh, Dear Prudence, yeah. on its own, fine. But, yeah. like... Like, I wasn't really invested in Prudence as a character to begin with. There isn't really any plot A to B. Literally, one of the characters just goes, Hey, guys, Prudence is trapped in the closet. And everyone's like, Oh, Prudence, you gotta come out. Yeah. (laughs) And she gets gets to hang out with the band at the end of the movie. Like, she's one of the gang, I guess. But she's a peripheral character and, like... I think she can sing, and I think like she does a good job with her bits of the movie, but if she was cut entirely out of the movie, I would not have felt like anything had been missing. Exactly. Same thing with almost any given character. I think she's the most obvious, but I think I could say the same thing of literally any given character. So what I have to say to recommend the movie is the music. I think a lot of the music is really, really strong, and a lot of the visuals are strong. Like, I would actually almost recommend just listening to the discography instead of watching the movie because yeah. I think the covers are really strong. Yeah. Um, but as a narrative, it's, it's pretty flat. Empty, it's not empty. Julius Better. Like, I remember this being a solid movie, and I was kind of stunned last night watching it because I was like, it, it, it caught me off guard how how flat it was, and it's almost worse because it does have good moments. There are uh, the drafting scene. Yeah, uh, that's, I was just about to I talk about to... it. Yeah, <laughs> it's Go amazing. It. No, no, like just the way the environments come to life and the banners turn into these large marking marching, you know, puppets almost. Uh, it's a visually astounding thing, and it's very theatrical and it's very, you know, exciting. Very briefly, and then if we move on to the next scene, it, but that scene kind of didn't matter in the end of that time. Watch the trailer to this movie and you'll you'll be just knocked over and you'll think this is going to be an incredible feast. But yeah, I think it works like if you were to want, if it was to be projected on a wall at, at a hipster party, <laughs> you could just watch the visuals. Yes. But you would get as much listening to the soundtrack as you would watching the movie. Emotion. If not more. Yeah. I also, another note that I had is that the director, uh, Julia, whoever. Julie Taylor. Um, Julie, yeah, she seemed very afraid to not have the full songs in this movie. Uh, we'll get to Moulin Rouge a little bit later for a movie that does that a little bit more properly, but it really feels like, okay, and then for this moment, we're going to play such and such song by the Beatles, and they start at the beginning of that song, and they end at the end of it, regardless of how it works pacing-wise. Right. Um, and... And sometimes, like with uh, I would like with um, I want you for the draft. 
like with uh, Strawberry Fields was another sequence that I thought worked very well in terms of narrative and in terms of uh, expressing the movie, or, um, expressing the song, uh, the sentiments of the song, rather. Sometimes it works really strong, and then it really only serves to highlight when we don't need to watch I Am the Walrus because it doesn't really help. And to that note, like that stuff exists because again, the, the Beatles were very much an embodiment of the hippie. They hippie went through 60s. their their, their trippy um, phase. But I thought, I thought weirdly enough, watching this movie, I kept comparing it to Forrest Gump of all things. Because um, they're Forrest Gumping like, their way through the seventies, right, or sixties and seventies. Yeah. Um, and it did it in a more engaging way, in a more relevant way, in a way that was much more balanced for telling the sides of the story. <laughs> Uh, and, um, yeah, it's, it's rough. Another thing that I thought of watching this movie, uh, in disappointment was a few years ago, there were a string of Steve Jobs movies. Yes. And Steve Jobs is a man I hold very dear to my heart. He is an idol of mine. And it was kind of rough watching these movies not hit it out of the park because now there's never going to be a really great Steve Jobs movie, and it's too bad because I think there's a really great Steve Jobs movie to be told. Yeah. Such, or like, as such, I don't think there's going to be a really great jukebox Beatles musical ever again because Across the Universe existed, yeah. and I feel like it blew that shot. Like this is maybe a little bit more important historically for movies, historically significant in that the Beatles are historically significant, and making a movie based around their works is important. And not hitting it out of the park has all that much more weight. Yeah. With that in mind. It's ambitious, I guess. Like, she's just trying to emulate the culture that the Beatles were working in. And, and like, very, very big, broad strokes. But, again, with I can't connect any of the characters. Um, I think there's a thematic sort of connection to the last movie we're going to review, La La Land, in that it's a little bit about the sort of artistic integrity, too. If you commit to this dream, commit to this dream. Uh, there's a, you know, the idea of uh, the competition developing in between the characters or um, the idea of selling out, getting close to your dream, but close enough to eat, but not close enough to be happy, you know? Uh, all of these yeah. things knock on the door of interesting, but are not flushed out because they're too busy getting to the next, not just the next scene, but the next, you know, social uh, ill or the next, you know, important historical event. What isn't covered in this? You know, I, <laughs> we got we got, one of our people gets killed in Vietnam. One of our people gets killed in the riots uh, at the universities, you know, like. One of our people isn't killed in the riots, though. There's a character that's killed during the Detroit riots who was never on screen before. That's right. Uh, We're, just they, just some play, guy. they just do it to play a song. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. Like I said, at the end of the day, it doesn't justify 125 minutes. But it's not one of those things where when I walked away from it, I was like, oh, man, I'm, sh I'm disappointed in Julie Taymor. I think it was a big swing. It just didn't connect. <laughs> For me, anyway. Yeah, I, uh... When I made my play, what I did is I had two uh, songs that kind of felt like they bookended each other from this artist. Like, they were like, hey, these songs seem vaguely familiar. And I ended up writing the beginning based off one song and the end based off the other. Then I wrote the story. Then I listened to all of his discography and fit in songs where it matched. Right. Uh, and I thought that worked out really well. This feels like, again, like a big swing at tackling the Beatles, but the fear of somehow not 
uh, not uh, honoring the legacy ends up making it so that this isn't actually a very good uh, homage to the Beatles after all is said and done. And that's, that's too bad. Yeah. Listen to the soundtrack. That's kind of my final word on it. <laughs> good enough? I agree. <laughs> we right. did it. What if Victor and I don't like each other? <laughs> As if that has anything to do with marriage. They were due to be married, though they'd never before met. His parents were thrilled. Hers were filled with regret. <sighs> but in a moment of panic, oh! Victor desperately fled. <laughs> and by a grave misunderstanding, <laughs> married the corpse bride instead. You may kiss the bride. She was frightening, but beautiful, and would never be false. Who is she? I'm his wife. All that she lacked was the beat of a pulse. Maggots. <laughs> From Tim Burton, creator of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Why go up there when people are dying to get down here? Comes a tale of wit, charm, and strife. I'm not dead. About a timid young man. Victoria! And the love of his life. Sounds creepy. Can a heart still break once it's stopped beating? So, as much as I'm not a fan of musicals, I am a huge fan of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Because, how could you not be? <laughs> it's a charming movie. But I've always had a beef with it. Because it's Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. No, Tim Burton didn't direct Nightmare Before Christmas. Henry Selick did. Tim Burton didn't write the script for Nightmare Before Christmas. He didn't, he didn't write the music or the songs for Nightmare Before Christmas. He wrote a poem called A Nightmare Before Christmas, and he said yay and nay to the character designs. But for some reason, we know <laughs> Nightmare Before Christmas as Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, and I've always thought that was a great injustice to Henry Selick and the people who actually made that movie. <laughs> Corpse Bride is a Tim Burton joint, and uh, I backed into it because I was quite impressed, actually, by his stop-motion Frankenweenie that he did. And it made me kind of back into Corpse Bride, because I'd, at the past, sort of thought of it as the lesser <laughs> nightmare uh, before Christmas. And upon watching it again, I think I had seen it, but, like, wasn't really paying close attention, sort of, it was on in a room I was in type of thing. Uh, I actually found that it's actually a little bit deeper than I had originally gave it credit for and that uh, I really, really love the style. Style is obviously important to every movie, but I think I'm learning that in a musical it's almost, it's up there with the most important thing about your movie. The movie looks like it's in black and white, but it's because of the design of the models. It's not in black and white. There's lots of shades of blue and lots of sort of like hints at color. But it's strange how the living world is sort of presented like this old black and white movie. And the dead world is this sort of vibrant, energetic, sort of happy place by contrast. The people who are dead seem much happier than the people who are alive. In a way, it accomplishes what... Les Miserables did in two and a half hours in 77 minutes. 
it's completely, completely the Tim Burton aesthetic that we've seen before. Like, he did not stretch himself at all. But <laughs> it's fun, it's bouncy, it's short, like I said, 77 minutes. And the story about this man who uh, inadvertently <laughs> finds himself engaged to a corpse. Uh, he, he was rehearsing his wedding vows uh, in a creepy environment and inadvertently proposed to a corpse. This broke, break, broke, breaks a curse for her. It's really good for her, but it's really bad for him because he's already about to get married to this other woman. <laughs> so uh, what did you think of Corpse Bride? I was surprised by it. Uh, I actually, I, I really did enjoy it. Um, and I wasn't expecting to, because much like you, I, I remember very clearly that Nightmare Before Christmas is the one that existed in the zeitgeist, and yeah. Corpse Bride is not. Right. And much like you said, in my head, I was kind of like, ah, there's probably a reason for that. Uh, but no, it's, it's very charming. Uh, I like the characters. Uh their design, their personality. I, it's weird to say about Johnny Depp and uh, Helena Bonham Carter, but they get lost in the roles. And I guess it helps that we're not looking at their faces, but I don't really... Sometimes with uh, animated movies, be they traditional CGI or stop motion, sometimes you can kind of just hear the person in the sound booth when you're listening to the dialogue. Yeah. Uh, you, you can just... Uh, you can see them performing their lines. Uh, sound. You can visualize them in the sound booth because it just sounds like someone delivering lines. And this was not the case. I feel like there was a lot of personality in the lines delivered and uh, doubled up with the stop motion. It worked really, uh, really well. Um, and also, as you said, I have a striking note that says, damn, this movie has style. Right. And it does. It it steers hard into that. Um <laughs> yeah, uh, it's 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 a fun watch, and it's interesting because unlike a lot of these other musicals, there's not a lot of because only Tim Burton does Tim Burton, or or the director of Nightmare Before Christmas, he also does Tim Burton. But there's not a lot of movies like this. Um, right. Normally, a musical is a musical because it's harping off Broadway and not uh, not creepy stop motion Halloween stuff. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of things it does well with musicals. I think I talked about this in the last musical episode, too, but they're singing the plot. They're singing all of it, right, uh, for the most part. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does stop for actual dialogue exchanges, but for me, I know that the musical is bad if an entire song goes by and I haven't really learned anything. Do you know what I mean? If the plot doesn't we'll move... We'll get into that. Oh, yes, we will. The plot doesn't move forward with the song. If I don't know anything more about the characters or about their situation at the end of the song, then that was just a production number. It was just... It was padding, right? And the more padding yeah. there is on the movie, the heavier the movie becomes. Um, it, it, it might be, you know, me not being a big fan of <laughs> musicals, uh, to be honest, but I think one of the big things that helped me connect with this Corpse Bride movie is that it doesn't overstay its welcome. It gets the story done very efficiently. We know the characters, they're archetypes, but we like them. We like the Corpse Bride and are sympathetic to her, but we also like uh, the woman that's uh, em what is Emily Watson's voicing. Uh, 
who's engaged to uh, the, the the doll that looks like Natalie Dormer. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's an arranged marriage, and they're both terrified about it. But when they meet each other, they actually fairly immediately connect and like uh, end up becoming optimistic that maybe this could work. And then the corpse bride thing sort of presents itself. Uh, so you kind of care about the characters, but uh, you can also get lost in the world. Uh, I love Christopher Lee is a voice in this movie. Uh, he, uh, the, the old preacher that she goes to confide in when she realizes that her lover has been uh, <laughs> cursed by this, this bride. And he just dismisses her as being completely mad. I thought that was a nice bit of misdirection because just for a second there you thought he was going to unspool the plot for us and set her down a path of adventure, but nope, he marches her right back to mom and dad. Is no help at all. Even the little moments are quite strong. Um, and, you know, uh, almost all the other movies I kind of took, I took intermissions. I voluntarily took an intermission during the Les Mis, okay? <laughs> like, uh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't feel that inclination. I didn't check my watch or what was left on the movie at any point. And that did happen with other movies on the list. I should admit a personal bias that generally speaking, I, I want to be a fan of Tim Burton. He tries like hell to buck you off, <laughs> but <laughs> there were times where Tim Burton was a really genius filmmaker. I, I have such love for Beetlejuice, <laughs> you know? I love Ed Wood <laughs> so much. I think that's a great movie. And every now and then he comes out with one that really knocks it out of the park. And then there's times that he has me slapping my forehead. This was quite strong. And his actual, the stop motion Frankenweenie that he did, again, which I was very skeptical of when I heard about him, very strong. Um, so I guess I came in a fan. I bring that baggage on board, but uh, I encourage anybody to seek out Corpse Rides. So. Speaking, speaking of the stop motion, I was actually convinced for the first part of this movie that it was CGI. It is very smooth, very well done stop motion. I think it's augmented um, with like, CGI. It's like it's fun as an art piece, as well. Um, it's interesting because as much as we will and have derided movies for not getting the pacing right, um, and as much as yeah, you, like you said, this movie doesn't overstay its welcome. The one thing that I felt was missing was the second act. Right. Because it feels like it sets up nicely, and then it concludes. And I would have just appreciated just, like, maybe two or three scenes in the middle there to kind of smooth things over. Uh, and I understand it's harder to do when you're doing a stop-motion feature because that is just way more time-intensive. Yeah. And time is money, especially on a production. Uh, so I, I get why it didn't work out that way. But just just let a couple more scenes to to get us more acquainted maybe with the the corpse bride as a character uh, um, would have maybe polished some edges for me. Uh, overall, though, like like you said, it's a short movie. You lose nothing by you. Uh, I have it. two little quibbles towards the end. I think that you could argue that none of the major players do anything to defeat the adversary in the movie. <laughs> he defeats himself by having. In the a, end, it was his drinking problem yeah, that got a hold of him. He, yeah, he gave a smug toast and then drank poison inadvertently. Right, like that's how the evil is <laughs> defeated, and nobody participated actively. It's almost a Deus Ex Machina sort of ending. 
I also thought, you know, <laughs> they established this world of the undead as being a comparatively happy place, even to the, like, the people are genuinely happy. The stagecoach driver who we met, who who dies of a coughing fit, uh, he seems so much better off for having died. But strangely, yeah. once the corpse bride sort of releases the Johnny, the Vincent character from his debt or from the, the engagement, she kind of disappears into these, like, moths and flies away, like, she dies from death. I, and I was like, well... I thought she was going to say hopscotch and get transported back. But, well, I'm like, I don't, I didn't understand that. Like, does, did she die, die? Or shouldn't she stay and party with the other corpses? Like, the story's over, <laughs> you so... You die her, when you're dead, you die in real life. <laughs> well, it's like her story was yeah, no, over, it, so she was yeah. over too, right? It just seems strange. It was a pretty visual, but, like, I didn't understand it. So you can die when you're dead again, I guess. Yeah, I think, like, her real character arc should have been that she's okay with not being a bride. Because that was her whole identity, was I died, engaged, about to be married, Yeah, I just need to get married. And, like, the real... I don't, maybe this movie isn't that kind of a movie, but if the lesson was, it's okay to not be a bride, I can just be me, Emily the character, Yeah, that, that might have uh, worked a little bit better. As, but, a, as a written piece of finale. And these are quibbles, really, in the end of things. I mean, I did, for the most part, find it charming. So, um, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's for a specific type of kid, I think. It's not a... I mean, there's some grisliness to it. There's a running joke about the corpse ride has this worm in her ear. Or in her eye, pardon I me. I hated that. And he talks like Peter Lorre. <laughs> And, uh, yeah. yeah, there's some sort of pretty dark, you know, she is a rotting corpse humor to it, and the sort of dead world, even though it's fun and happy, is kind of oddly grisly, but, yeah. Yeah, you could see her teeth through her cheek, which is always a kind of, uh, thing for me. Yeah, it might be more for the college it's crowd than the kid the crowd, I guess is what I'm saying, but for, if this sounds like something that you will like, then it's something you like, <laughs> And like, if you would legit, uh, like, if watching The Nightmare Before Christmas sounds like a legitimately good time for you, this would also be a good movie to see. Yeah, I don't think it's near the movie. Like, as, outside of nostalgia, if you would enjoy watching Nightmare Before Christmas, you would enjoy this. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. They're clearly of the same world. Um, I think that Nightmare Before Christmas is obviously the better of the movies, but they're both worth your time for sure. You wish to have the curse reversed. Into the Woods from uh, Stephen Sondheim. It's based off of the stage musical, obviously, and it itself is based off of a bunch of uh, fairy tales sort of being pulp fictioned. <laughs> He's taking like uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, uh, Little Red Riding Hood, uh, um, 
Rumpels, not Rumpelstiltskin, skin, <laughs> um, Goldilocks, and uh, basically uh, Cinderella. Cinderella, and telling them all simultaneously, jumping from characters to characters. Uh, the last time we did a musical themed episode, the uh, musical horror podcast show, we talked about Sweeney Todd, the demon barber, barber of Fleet Street. And it was my favorite, one of my very favorites of the list. I think it was my second favorite. I think Little Shop won that one. But I, I was very surprised at how much I liked it. Again, because musicals aren't my thing. So I, I came in hopeful. And I started watching Into the Woods and I was like, okay, I think I know where I am. It was brought to me by Disney. These are familiar fairy tales. We got a lot of celebrities. This will be light. This will be fun. I get where I am. And I was going with it. I was taking the ride. And then the movie takes a like severe turn at about the two-third mark. And all of a sudden it went from, I'm putting up with this, as to, okay, this is actually really interesting. Because what we see here is a musical fairy tale where the moral of the story is there's no such thing as a happy ending. That's ambitious. For that, I will give it points. So, so far so good on Into the Woods. But... I'm willing to hear a second opinion. Ah, <laughs> uh, rough. We agree again. Dang it. Uh, <laughs> Shit. Yeah. I, so, like, I was, yeah, marginally engaged throughout it. I think the first, uh, the first two acts, um, uh, are what you expect feel them to more be. More like references than a story. Uh, there's a lot of, and then this happens, and then this happens that isn't really related to the rest of the stuff. It sets up for that strong third act, um, but it uh, it doesn't really lend itself to moment to moment engagement. Um, my biggest complaint with the movie is that the last third should have been the last three quarters. And everything that happened up to the twist should have been a, basically an introduction to this movie. Um, because once it twists, I feel like it's a lot more narratively driven, a lot more uh, character based, a lot of stuff happens that makes more sense given what we've learned. Yeah. And if anything, just giving time for those moments to breathe would have amplified it a lot more. It's interesting, too, because I feel like not a lot of movies. Uh, save themselves in the third act. Normally, it's the other way around, it's where true. a good they movie stick will come out overall worse because ah, they didn't stick the ending. Yeah. And this movie is the exact inverse, where I, it would be a completely mad movie, except for the end is really good. Yeah, because that's where I was. I was thinking this is something for the kids. It's something for the family. It's maybe not for me, but it's star-studded. It's got good spectacle. It's treating itself like like visually, like you would you would expect a presentation to this to be. And I think that because of, maybe I should have seen it coming, but I didn't. Because of Sondheim, and maybe I was suckered by that Disney logo, I didn't see it coming. It's not that it gets a little dark. It gets a lot dark. Let's talk about the plot a little bit here. I mean, in this, even in the, the first story, the, the, the way it starts, the hero or the heart of the movie is this wronged witch played by Meryl Streep. She wants her beauty back, and in order to do that, sets basically all the other characters uh, into this chain reaction quest. Uh, there's the baker who wants to become a father. There's the you know the Cinderella story going on. Jack who has to sell his cow. Uh, all of it gets tied in, and you're leading towards what you expect. And we they give us that very rapidly. I remember thinking this is tying together, tying up really quickly. But then in rapid succession. 
Jack loses his mother, the baker loses his wife, and people start dying to the left and right. And over and above that, the baker, upon receiving this child, realizes that it's very stressful and and, and, uh, really nerve-wracking to be a parent. And Jack, upon retrieving the treasure from the sky, finds repercussions chasing him down the beanstalk that are very severe (laughs) to his immediate family. And it's like everybody gets their wish, but their life is worse for it. (laughs) And the movie kind of just leaves you there. And in a way, compared to what I was expecting, this had gone no country for old men on me. I was like completely, (laughs) completely fucking gut punched by this. I just couldn't believe how dark it went. And I, I imagine a lot of families taking their kids to see this, probably asking themselves the same question. And, uh, I have to admit, Eric, that put a smile on my face. (laughs) (laughs) It's dark. I'm surprised that Disney didn't change it or somehow, uh, you know, make it a little bit friendlier than it is. It's not that it ends in a like a totally diabolical. Everybody's bleeding out on the floor, but it's not the ending you expect or or maybe you want. Yeah. There's like I I remember. I, I think my note for when the wife character does die. Is just it's something with just a lot of exclamation marks. Like, wait, what? She's dead? Yeah, That's there we go. It. Did she just die? Exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Does that only um, blunt and she's just gone now? She's gone. Yeah. She's just gone, right? Okay. Just, that's it. And I like I I just wish that we could have spent more time in the world where that happens and could happen and less time in the setup of hey, these are all fantasies. Because at the end of the day, um we all know. We, we all know Little Red Riding Hood. We don't need to see exactly how she got tricked by the wolf. We understand. Even even if you've never heard the story before, I think the setup of the movie is clear enough for that scene in particular. Yeah. Little Red Riding Hood goes, the wolf gets ahead of her. There's this hilarious Johnny Depp dressed as a wolf, dressed as a grandma scene. Then we cut back to the, the hunter who's actually just the baker. Yes. Everyone just calls him a hunter and he's a bit miffed by it. Like, oh good, a hunter's here. He's like, I'm not a hunter. Uh, in any case... Uh, he comes, cuts her out, and that's all well and good. But then we have a song about how, ah, uh, yeah, I went in there and he ate me and my grandma, and we were in his stomach, and that was entirely unnecessary. Yeah. And uh, and, and and we know. Um, yeah. Uh, I think that uh, Sondheim has got a little bit of a dark heart. I haven't. Uh, I didn't know this, but Jeremy told me about uh, the Sweeney Todd musical that there was a whole thing at the end of that that Tim Burton, to my surprise, didn't use, where all of the ghosts, everybody who'd been killed in the play, which was a whole lot of people, got up and yes. did a big dance number at the end of the show. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not that dark, but I can sort of see how the same guy who did the demon barber did this movie <laughs> and the darkness is what wins me over there's some good performances too i wanted to mention chris pine playing this obnoxious prince <laughs> the princes I, are delightful <laughs> in their toxic masculinity they're bastards <laughs> uh, like it's, it's it's really great because he seems very genuine and personal to begin with and then there's a scene with him and his brother singing about how princely they are while they're walking through the river and it's like that's fantastic yeah and uh that's where the charm of the movie wins out for me um and we haven't sort of well maybe we have i hadn't seen that that sort of character done and like i said to you before we hit record it's almost like 
if if William Shatner was young enough and could sing, he could play that part. It's kind of funny that the new Vogue Captain Kirk played that part and did it well. Uh, and it's... I have respect for actors who can tread that li- line. I think you have to know whether you can do it or not. But um, if there are actors who can do anything, you know, and there are actors you have to be careful how you cast. And uh, if you can be good, as good in an intense drama as you are in an over-the-top musical, as you are in a dramedy, or as you are in a horror movie, like, that's, that's impressive to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I give points because, you know, a lot of the actors are going for the next paycheck. They want a high-profile role, obviously. They want something that'll make money. They want something to be popular. So, yeah, Disney, Sondheim, Johnny Depp's in it. <laughs> All right, I got to sing? Okay. <laughs> it, it exceeded my expectations. It's pretty, it's pretty charming, and it's way darker than you'd expect it to be. I had actually never seen this before. I had missed it in theaters, um, and it, it did catch me off guard both ways uh, um, while watching it. Like, I didn't expect it to be uh, as fractured of a fairy tale when I first watched it, although I guess like the trailer should have tipped me off, but maybe I'm dense. Uh, and then I definitely did not see the twist coming. Um, I know it's... Uh, almost uh goes without saying but my favorite character to watch was meryl streep she really chewed the scenery every time she was on i was all in on the witch story and originally um uh, it looks like the movie setting it up for the witch to be evil and i was kind of bracing for that but even with even when i thought that was going to happen i was still rooting for her and then it turns out she's just a character I would argue that the witch might even be the heart of the movie and more than any other character in a lot of ways. Yeah. Literally half of my notes are, maybe not literally, but half of my notes are, I'm rooting for the witch. I'm still rooting for the witch. The witch is still my favorite character. Well, it's just sort of the, the, maybe she was a monster, but she was made into a monster, right? She was wronged. But, you know, she gets her beauty back, but it costs her her powers. And then, you know, she sort of realizes that Clinging to her beauty was maybe a little bit vain, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's you know it's not super deep, but how about how's this for a question, Eric? Do you is this for kids? It depends on the kind of kid. I guess. Uh, I guess. Like, I think I think it is with all the stuff we've said. It is more family oriented than not. I would say. Um, I mean, there it, is it death, but it's not grisly. Is like Sweeney Todd. It's not grisly death like in, over the top in Sweeney Todd. People sort of fall off of a, a cliff or, or get disappeared. But tra- yeah. Tracy Allman, who's an actor I've always liked, is Jack's mom. <laughs> it's an unfortunate fate. <laughs> yep. Uh, I, I love the giant stuff, too, <laughs> generally speaking. <laughs> it, is, it is interesting at the very end of the movie. They kind of conclude the giants are people, too. Let's kill the last one. <laughs> Well, and it's just like, it seems like, yeah, in a lot of ways, Jack and the Beanstalk is an unfinished story, you know? He went up there, he killed a dude, he took the dude's stuff, and he just came back down, you know? That's not yeah. cool. No, yeah. Are you the hero of this story, or are you a murderer? Yes. Uh, obviously, yeah. this, this movie isn't asking those deeper questions, but... It's fun, and I wasn't always having fun watching this list, and uh, it exceeded my expectations, and uh, that didn't always happen while I was watching this list. Um, mm-hmm. There were things that you'd like expect. Said, it, Sorry? 
I, I was going to say, like, it's worth noting again that this movie's also unique in that it pulls a third act upset where it it saves the movie in the end instead of wasting any uh, uh, goodwill it's earned, which I think was the most fascinating part for me on a more meta level. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. I expect Andrew Kendrick to do well, right? She did the that Frozen movie. Obviously, she can sing. She does the Pitch Perfect movies and stuff like that. But I, you know, wouldn't necessarily expect Johnny Depp to nail it as well. Or, or like, I guess Johnny Depp had done Sweeney Todd. That was his first musical he'd ever done before. Um, I don't know. I I liked it. I guess I just circling around. I liked it. I don't have. <laughs> I I feel like I'm out of my depth trying to review these musicals because I don't have a lot of the peripheral knowledge. I don't know what was changed for the play. Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Disney did pull the teeth out of this production. But <laughs> uh, from what I understand, uh, my wife told me that like the third the third act part was more of like the second half of the movie in the play, okay. which is really pushes it a little bit more towards what I want out of general pacing. But I don't know of any distinct grisly thing that was cut out it is it is uh this word always comes across a little bit harsher than it uh, than it means but mediocre is kind of how i'd say like like it has generally good but it's not great well i mean i i, I think expectation feeds a lot into it I, <laughs> I, I when you sit down you kind of some episodes feel more like homework than others, you know, but that's what's good when I put myself on the clock, right? Uh, if I'm doing a bunch of war movies, I, I really like watching a good war movie, but if I'm watching like six of them in two weeks, all of a sudden, yeah, no, I don't really feel like watching a thin red line right now, but guess what? I'm watching a thin red line right now. So sometimes I need to be won over, and this movie was one of the few movies that won me over of this list. So the time has come where we're going to talk about Moulin Rouge. I have spoken about Baz Luhrmann in the past on the show. I talked about his R&J in that I really didn't like it. I was not a big fan of his R&J. A regular guest on the show is Jason Dubray, and I think almost every time he's been on the show, he's said that he's hated a movie, like he's hated a movie. And uh, I just think that's really strong words. Like, it's almost, it's almost strange to waste such a powerful emotion as hate on a movie. That said, I fucking hate Moulin Rouge. I hate it. I hate it. Now, I've got some personal baggage, as I often do. My first viewing of this movie was about as worse a way as you could see a movie. Like, 
there was bad atmosphere and like you know uh, it wasn't a great environment to be watching a movie about a main character who's in love with love <laughs> you know and uh, because of that I knew I gave it some time and I revisited it and when I revisited it I really really still hated it and I hadn't touched it for years and this is a movie like I have literally thousands of movies Eric and I go to people's houses and sometimes they have 10 or 12 movies and I've always it's interested to see what movies they bother to own and I keep <laughs> seeing Moulin Rouge and I keep asking myself <laughs> how often do you guys really watch Moulin Rouge <laughs> let's be real about this um I I think that part of it is the Baz Luhrmann aggressive style he even by his like Michael Bay editing standards. He is so crazy frenetic. There is one of the longest digital panning shots in film history at the beginning of this movie, which is actually quite impressive as it sweeps over this digital Paris. And for a second, you're like, wow, impressive. And then I don't think a shot holds for more than two seconds for the next 15 minutes of the movie. And uh, it shook me off very quickly. By the time we got to Ewan McGregor and the misunderstanding about is he's supposed to be uh, there trying to get his show produced, but she thinks he's this big high rolling money guy and she's trying to seduce him and blah, blah, blah. I was already checking my watch and we weren't even half an hour into this over two hour <laughs> masturbatorial offensive piece of shit. <laughs> so... <laughs> I am sorry, but I am of the unpopular opinion that Moulin Rouge might be one of the most overrated movies ever made. That's where I land on Moulin Rouge, but I welcome a second opinion. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I guess this is going to be the first one where we disagree. Really disagree. <laughs> okay. I, so I, I, right off the bat, I actually don't disagree with the overall points that you made. I do have notes about how the, the edits haven't haven't aged well at all. Um, I do also have a real big complaint about how this movie love is a plot point and not a development, where the two characters just kind of like, I guess we're in love now. Alright. Um, that being said... <laughs> I think just as much as Corpse Bride, this movie has style. Uh, it is a unique world to be exposed to. Um, I find the characters are endearing, if not very deep. Uh, and I do also think that this movie does a really good job of avoiding the number one pitfall of musicals, of having... Uh, it has music that provides forward momentum. Yes. And a lot of the musicals we talked about, and a couple of the ones we're about to talk about, don't do that. They have songs that happen because uh, we're taking a break to listen about what just happened. Yeah. Every time, almost without exception, there's a song in this movie, the plot is moving forward, and I appreciate that. And it's doing so with a style that I also appreciate. Um, hey, you know what? I, I don't think it's super... Fantastic! If you want to go for a most overrated movie, I wouldn't even disagree with that. But I think it's fine. I I enjoyed it. Um, it's you have to go in for the style over substance for sure because I am a hundred percent detached from the love story. Right. Uh, but the singing is fun. The like, there's a couple Beatles songs that are done better here than in Across the Universe. Uh, <laughs> they do. Uh, Baz Luhrmann 
very specifically does a good job of taking what he needs from the music that he's using and doesn't get hung up on what the original intent of the song was, what the original lyrics were. He just, it feels, maybe this is a, maybe maybe I've accidentally criticized the movie, but it feels kind of like a murderer's, uh, like, hey, I, I have your daughter be here or whatever. And they like clipped it out of magazines to make the thing. It feels right. like that. We're like, okay, a little bit of you too, a little bit of Beyonce, like whatever we it's can It's a collage. Do. And it feels cohesive yeah. despite all of that. Uh, whereas looking at Across the Universe, they're like, okay, this song, we're going to do the whole song. It's going to, we're not going to change the context. Nothing like it has to be as was sung by the Beatles. This movie takes exactly what it needs to move forward and then moves forward. But I would say to an almost overbearing degree, like, it's true, they won't play a whole song. They'll play snippets of three different songs. And we yeah. haven't mentioned, this is set in 1890s Paris, right? Uh, mm-hmm. This this wealthy, or, or maybe not, aristocratic anyway kid, played by the always charming Hugh McGregor. I always like him. He's a good actor. Um but his father is very ashamed that he's going to try and make his living as a as a playwright and spend his time hanging about in dirty debauched Paris. And as the movie goes on, the more I'm kind of on side with his dad. <laughs> but uh, the idea, I think, of using modern songs in this very clearly not modern movie was that he was supposed to be so ahead of the the, the curve with his songwriting that that his songs seem to come from the future the problem is is that the songs that are from the future aren't exclusive to the songs that ewan mcgregor writes they're everywhere they just kind of put pop music in a blender and 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 they're vomiting it out back at you you know <clears throat> whereas the other movies i've saw and and, and, the, and the one that we will talk about uses their style to you know try to tell their story I think Moulin Rouge uses the style to disguise the fact that they have no story. <laughs> I would agree with that. And they do it the best out of any of these movies. <laughs> <laughs> that it wore me out. It wore me out. I said the same thing about like this style of movie, uh, uh, Natural Born Killers, the Oliver Stone movie, because yeah. it's so hyper-phonetically cut. You get to that two-hour point, even if I'm liking the movie, I'm fucking worn out. Like, it, it, it's... It's pushing me away. I think if you're going to take something with that aggressive a style, you got to be disciplined with it. 90 to 100 minutes max. And there's certainly not enough story to justify the runtime. And he's enough of a fan of his quick edits that, you know, just cut all those edits in half. <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe he's a music video director or a short film director. Um, I saw his Great Gatsby movie on an airplane, and I actually was surprised. I actually kind of thought it was decent. It was a Baz Luhrmann movie that didn't piss me off. But for me, after his uh, first movie was at Strictly Ballroom, it's been fucking diminishing returns. And he's like, it's weird, because he's like one of the most respected directors out there. And I remember, like, I didn't like it when it first came out, and people were foaming at the mouth of it. And I just, I was just like, what are you guys talking about? Like, like anytime I'd ask somebody what their favorite part of the movie was, they wouldn't even be able to tell me. They were just like, oh, I just love the style of it. It's just so, uh. And I was just like... <laughs> Yeah, but you don't, like, who's your favorite character? <laughs> John Leguizamo's in this movie playing a dwarf for some reason. Did the character need to be a dwarf? 
did it need to be John Leguizamo? I don't know. It's just another stylistic choice, and it's there and gone, <laughs> you know. Um, obviously, I have I, something rubbed me the wrong way about this movie, and uh, more so than any other Baz Luhrmann movie that I've watched, this was the one that really was just like, you're you're not for me. Um, there are other directors that have just shaken me off that way. I, I, I watched like my third or fourth Lars von Trier film, and I said, you know what? I'm done with Lars von Trier, right? I just, I clearly, we just don't, we do not find the same things entertaining. We just, we're, we're on a different page. I'm almost to that level with, with David Lynch. Honestly, for every David Lynch movie I like, there's three that piss me off. So. The one that's starting to scare me is Ridley Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like he hasn't knocked it out of the park in the way that I really count on him to in a while. Yeah. But um, it's it's interesting, like, even if I agree 100% with that, I still wouldn't say that Ridley Scott sucks. <laughs> but, like... But you think Baz Luhrmann sucks? I kind of think, well, I think that his style takes over everything. I think style has consumed everything. And you know what's interesting is that uh, with watching this and then Across the Universe, I saw a lot of influence of this movie on Across the Universe, and I thought Across the Universe did it worse. Really, because um, like at least it was cogent though. I could follow the camera flow in across the universe. There was so many scenes in this movie that were literally dizzying. Even on the small screen, on the big screen, I found them almost nauseating. The people complained when they saw Blair Witch. A lot of people didn't like the shaky cam because it made them feel kind of nauseous. I remember actually feeling that a little bit in the theater with Moulin Rouge. It was just like, calm the camera down. Settle on someone's face for more than a few seconds and start telling this story, <laughs> please. <laughs> like, what is in the end of the day? I guess this is. A, I mean, we haven't very well mentioned the plot. This writer wants to write about love. He falls in with a troupe of actors who have a lot of heart but no script to do. They don't have really a skill beyond the willingness to be performers. They can perform, but they can't create. Yes. Uh, and so he goes to the most loudest uh, club in Paris, the Moulin Rouge, and uh, the head courtesan, played by Nicole Kidman, uh, he falls in love with her. And uh, they have to produce the show, but they have to keep their love secret, and I just can't care about anything that happens to anybody in the movie. <laughs> the show must go on. Will it be a hit? Will he, you know, be able to tell his true story about love? Um, I'm... Spoilers, Nicole Kidman ends up dying of tuberculosis. It's not spoilers. They tell you at the beginning of the That's movie. That's true. She ends up dying of tuberculosis, which is a relatively clean way for a prostitute in Paris in the 1890s to die. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I think that the actors are talented. Like I said, uh, there's times when Ewan McGregor was singing where it's like, I don't know if you're an amazing singer, but you're you're, you're selling it to me. Like, Yeah. He, I don't you're know an if, amazing actor who can sing. You're an actor who can sing, maybe not a singer who's acting. But but yeah. uh, I, I, I think we'll talk about it when we get to uh, La La Land. I think similar things could be said about Ryan Gosling at times. Like uh, I think he can sing, but I think he's more an actor who is singing than a singer who is acting. Um, and we talked before about knowing your format. I'd take an actor that can sing over vice versa any day. Because I think selling the moment counts so much more than nailing the song. Well, and obviously just do... Careful casting. I remember talking to Jeremy about Schumacher's Phantom of the Opera and then uh, the casting of the Phantom. What, what, what do we have? Of, what do we know about the Phantom of the Opera? He's disfigured and he can sing. 
So why would you hire a handsome? Why would you hire a handsome dude who can't sing to play that role? That just doesn't fucking make sense to me, right? It's just like, no. Um, I I like I give Moulin Rouge an enthusiastic thumbs down. I think my opening salvo was fairly obvious, but I guess I would say don't take my word for it because I am such in the minority about this. <laughs> like people, and it's interesting because I thought I was in a minority for not really loving it, yeah. and yet I'm I'm the one defending it. Yeah, you're situation. sitting here in rock yeah, rock. Hard. <laughs> like it was, it it. it, it pushed me off and then it just became grading and it's full of people I like too I love Jim Broadbent wearing that ridiculous fat suit and dancing his ass off doing that show like there's such energy that he brings to it uh, but I, I I can't like the movie it just like it, it it it's rattling to my senses in not a good way uh, another thing that I said about uh, natural born killers which I would all say exactly about this is if you're going to yell at me and this movie is yelling at me, have a fucking point. <laughs> and I didn't see it. So uh, I remain all these years later, not just not a fan of Moulin Rouge. I mean, it might be one of my least favorite movies. <laughs> like, and I'm a lover of film. Like, I don't want to be this guy. I have consciously said on the podcast in the past, like, there's something boring about the guy who's just going to rage on the internet about how fucking stupid this fucking movie is. But this is what Moulin Rouge brings out of me. Like, anger <laughs> comes out of me. <laughs> I don't think Nicole Kidman sucks, and I think Ewan McGregor is about as charming an actor as you can have to center a movie on, you know? And this I, movie I felt, lays there. If I wasn't necessarily agreeing with him, I felt sympathy for him all the way through. Mm -hmm. um, it sucks when someone you love is and you can't be with them. <laughs> that, that, that That's sad, I guess, but... Sure. Yeah. There's something just too mamby-pamby, too simple about it. I'm here to write about love, because love is the most important thing. What's the Look, credo? All you need is love. Yeah, all you need is love. Um, uh, the most imp important thing that a man can learn is to be loved and that's be actually, loved in return. That's actually Fuck a off. note I have. It, <laughs> Fuck it bothers off. me. So, why are you pulling me down in this pit with you? I wanted to be ambivalent about my leverage, not hate it. It bothers me when. Uh, Whenever there's uh, like a writer or a piece of writing in uh, popular culture, whether it's like movies or TV shows or whatever, and it's supposed to be profound and it isn't, yeah, that throws me off. Uh, the one that the first time I really caught this was in the TV show Californication, mm -hmm. where the main character—it's a movie about sex in California—but the main character is supposed to be this fantastic writer. Like people are always like, "Man, you're lucky you're a good writer because you're a jerk and no yeah. one would like you otherwise." But every time we see his writing. It's the dumbest. It's, lame. it's the dumbest. And that line that you quoted is very similar, where they're like, this profound piece of poetry, the greatest thing you'll ever learn. Oh, so motivational. And it just, it falls so flat. And at the, at the end, like, someone rallies Ewan McGregor to follow through with the film's climax because they're like, no, you forgot. The greatest thing you'll ever learn. Never forget that. And he's like, oh, you're right. To love and be loved in return. Um, Saying whoever wrote that was a genius. <laughs> uh, and again, I, like when I originally heard of Moulin Rouge and the idea of using the modern music, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they keep it to period music and then all of a sudden this guy is writing fucking Beatles tunes? 
that would have made it almost interesting, Eric. But they was just like, no, we're going to collage. It's going to be everything at once. And we're going to cram it down your throat. We're going to just cram this fucking musical down your throat. And I gotta say, I thought the film was the strongest when it was doing its music video moments. Yeah. I, I was engaged with that those things moment to moment. I didn't think it had a big story. Yeah. I didn't think the characters as written were particularly deep. I thought they were endearing and fun. Um, but I enjoyed the spectacle of it. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't... Like, rating it 1 out of 10, that doesn't lend me to rate it very highly. But I don't... I didn't find it infuriating the way yeah. you did. Well, again, it it, it, it it hit me the wrong way. And again, it's hard. Once If it hits you personally, that's a real hard thing to shake off. For some reason, this movie got me personally. But, I understand. Uh, I, I, I do understand. Uh, I'm not usually this guy, but with this movie, I'm that guy. As far as I'm concerned, I, I, don't see it. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I would say don't see it. But I'd also guess have to concede that Maybe you shouldn't take my word for it. I, like, I think you'll know right away if you will like it based off of what we said. Because I think nothing... Like, I don't disagree with anything you said. I don't come down nearly as hard as you do. Um, but if, like, you're, if you're listening to this at home, uh, dear listeners, and the stuff that Larry's mentioned, the stuff that I've mentioned, make you go, okay, that sounds... Like, I can understand why that'd be great, but it still sounds interesting probably you'll like this movie yeah. if you heard those things and go oh that sounds insufferable you're right yeah i personally think it's a nightmare Which is based off of a novel, which or which is based off of a stage musical, which is based off a stage play, which is based off of the original novel by Victor Hugo, and uh, it stars Hugh Jackman as the very dramatically named Jean Valjean, and Russell Crowe as Javert, and a whole bunch of other people that we can get into. But um, what we have here is kind of a gritty musical. <laughs> um, this is from the director of Tom Hooper, who did The King's Speech, won Best Picture just before he made this movie. And I remember watching The King's Speech sort of felt like homework to me. Everyone said it was great, but for some reason I wasn't excited about it. But when I watched it, yeah, it's good. Well, that's kind of how I felt about Les Mis. I, uh, every, I heard a lot of people say that it was worth watching, but I couldn't get excited about it. And then this podcast came around and I watched it. Unlike a King's Speech, though, I didn't walk away happy from Les Mis. And I have a feeling like we're going to disagree on it. <laughs> there are very good things to say about it. There are interesting, creative choices to say about it. But I think for everything they do right, they do a couple of things wrong, too. And, again, not my genre. At two and a half miserable hours... <laughs> 
it kind of wore me out. It kind of wore me out. I would say that this is much more of an interesting failure than a debacle, which I would say I think Moulin Rouge was. <laughs> but no, I guess if you were to ask me, did I enjoy my time with Les Mis, I would have to say I did not. But the movie is called Les Mis. It's about people <laughs> who are in misery. And, uh, yeah. Wolverine, Hugh Jackman, Jean Valjean has done a prison sentence. He's been released, but he's under the shadow of this Russell Crowe character who is, seems determined to prove that Jean Valjean is of no worth and will never be able to redeem himself for his past sins. The movie is full of like like scenes that lead us to where we're going to feel like the movie's starting, and then we slam cut to eight years later, <laughs> and then they reset, and then they move on to the point where the movie's about to start again, and then they slam cut to eight years later. <laughs> What's interesting to me, and what I noticed as a pattern to the movie in the production, because I think it was the production and the style that I had to connect to, was that the Film sequences tended to start and finish with big, grand, sweeping shots. But everything, almost everything in the in-between, tight, handheld, on the actors' faces. That sort of gritty, verite, shaky camera, like, get into their soul camera work. And at times, it really, really works. But at other times, I'm reminded, musics are spectacles. You know, and if you're truly trying to make this quote grisly, gritty spectacle, show us the spectacle. That's where I start on Les Mis. <laughs> so, <laughs> where I come down on Les Mis, I my thing uh, with like really stellar movies is you can rewatch them again and again and again. You always take away something new or something fresh. You always feel re-energized by the things you love about the movie. And Les Mis, to me, is the exact fucking opposite of that. Oh. This is going to be a mirror of the last one because you, you... kind of don't like Les Mis. I hate Les Mis. Okay, I good. hate it so much it energizes me. Okay. Like, it gives me life how much I detest this movie. And every time I watch it, I feel more vindicated. <laughs> I feel like you kind of, you you jumped over a little bit. Like, oh, it feels like the movie's about to start and then it's Lancaster eight years later. It's way worse than that. Right. The first 15 minutes of this movie are useless. Entirely yeah. useless. You could cut, like, literally cut them out. Like, no, no fancy editing. Just take the whole movie into your nonlinear editor, cut out the first 15 minutes, and the movie still works. If not, works a little bit better because within the first two minutes after that 15 minutes they summarize everything that's happened in the first 15 minutes it's really it's it's just infuriating it's three steps backwards one step forward the movie i hate it awesome um, awesome i was i was pulling my punches a little bit because i was worried that you were going to be a huge fan no, fuck this movie. okay no, and, and by the way it's not two and a half hours long it's two hours and 37 minutes which to me pushes it far too uncomfortably close to three hours and again uh, the first first of all the first 15 minutes is entirely useless but the first hour hold on i actually have the the um minute written down uh the first hour and eight minutes uh 
are essentially useless. They're moderate setup for minor characters in the grand scheme of things. Yep. Uh, literally half of this movie does nothing, does nothing for the overall plot. And it's horrible to do something like that. And we're talking. I was talking before about know your medium. Um, even I've seen the live production. I've seen them as an awful lot for someone that hates it. I've seen the live production of it. The live production suffers from these issues as well. Right. Um, but when you have, when you have the movie and you have this complete creative control that you could do, they, they did much like the. The Across the Universe took too much care to stay true to the Beatles. This took way too much care to stay true to the uh, stage play when there was so much room to improve it. It's just beat by beat the stage play. Why even make it a movie? So many times watching this movie, I was like, why is this a movie? Why am I not just watching this on the stage? What are you doing right now that isn't made better by me watching it on stage? There's... There's this thing uh, in theater that a lot of younger uh, playwrights will write scenes in cars because they grew up with movies. And in movies, you can have two characters in a car driving, discussing. You can move the camera around. You can cut to some B-roll and have it be interesting. On the stage, there's just two people in cars and nothing happens. And it doesn't work as well. This is like the reverse of that, where you have so much room to do interesting stuff because you have a movie. And instead, you shoot it like it's a stage play in a way that does not amplify the source material, does not amplify the story. It just makes me wish that it was over, but it's never fucking over. It just keeps on going. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, it's it's epic. I, I feel somewhat vindicated. The other thing about this, Eric, is that Les Mis is arguably one of the most beloved musicals ever. And Why? If I that's the case... If that's the case, am I not vindicated in my position that musicals are a little bit silly? Especially this style. If you're dealing with like pe prostitutes dying miserable deaths, which mus musicals seem to be fascinated with, the French Revolution, children being killed, sacrificing themselves for the good of la resistance. Though I die, la resistance lives on. Um, You've got all of this, and you don't have a story. Well, I talked about those jump cuts, right? He's a prisoner. He wants to redeem himself. They jump cut, what is it, eight years later or something? And he's running the town. <laughs> like, he went... It's, it's he... the dumbest... So in the first 15 minutes, he's in a prison. Uh, he comes, they're hauling a boat. Uh, Javert, who is my favorite character, the only one that I agree with whatsoever at all. Really? He's all like, hey, you... Uh, lift this log. He does. He drags it three feet for some reason. This is all wasting my time. And he says, by the way, you made parole. Uh, Wolverine's like, cool, I made parole. Uh, I can't wait. Oh, by the way, one thing that really bothers me is this movie keeps talking about how these Frenchmen are slaves and they're not slaves. I hate it when people use the word slave and they don't mean literally you're owned by another person. Right. This guy was in jail for stealing a loaf of bread. He moans about how unfair it was, but it turns out that he got five years, which I, sure, that's a lot, whatever, for stealing bread. Then he tried to escape from prison. Then he got added onto a sentence. And this is the beginning of the introduction of the character that I'm supposed to root for. And it only gets worse from there because he leaves. He rips up his parole papers. He goes in, He goes to a church. 
the priest at the church is the only one that's nice to him in this whole movie. The first thing this guy fucking does is rob the priest blind instead of asking for like a job or a bed or something. And again, this is supposed to be the guy that I agree with. Then he gets busted by the police. The the priest bails him out. Him. And our reward for this is he sings for five fucking minutes about what just happened. Yeah. I watched it happen. I don't need to see it. <laughs> I don't ever want to see you again. Why are you the main character of this movie? And then we skip and he's the mayor. Well, maybe when they do it live, by that point, a large portion of the audience has fallen asleep. <laughs> so they just need to, <laughs> to rattle the cage a little bit. Uh, yeah, but that, that whole arc that he has there is, like I said, done in a cut. That's not told in story, right? He was a thief willing to steal from a priest. The priest defended him even though he was going to steal from the priest. He has an epiphany. I should be a better person. Smash cut. He's a better person. <laughs> Where's the journey? Where's the character development? That's, have have <laughs> Lynn is the trilogy and just cover those eight years because that's the interesting part. And it's and it does it twice. This movie does it twice. <laughs> yeah. It does it two times. There's another, uh, like, then there's a bunch of misadventures of him as the mayor. He has a factory worker who's trying to support her child because of misfortune through the course of an evening. She gets turned into a prostitute. Her hair gets cut off, which is the worst thing that's ever happened to her. Uh, like, Anne Hathaway is just giving it the whole time i have to say i will give some points to anne hathaway she really poured a lot of emotion you could tell that she was happy to be in lame is <laughs> you know i understand all the attention she got like that was a fairly strong performance and if it was at the end of her own movie if this like her character's name is fontaine and she was a factory worker got kicked out if there was a movie called fontaine and it was like a requiem for a dream type <laughs> oh no a bad situation just keeps getting worse and then we ended with her song that would make a lot of sense but as an introduction to her character her going all the way up to 11 just emotionally drains me you were talking about the smash uh, like not the smash cuts the quick edit of uh moulin rouge wearing you out yeah. The emotional strife of this movie wears me out so quickly. <sighs> We're also neglecting to talk about the Australian elephant in the room. <laughs> Russell Crowe. And this was a choice of the production, which I think is interesting because that's what you get in a live performance. All of the actors actually performed. They sang the songs and it was recorded live as they sang them. So you got it warts and all. I am not a musician. I have not studied, you know, I don't know anything about vocal training. I probably couldn't tell you who was a better singer than a worse, but I will tell you that I think Russell Crowe was noticeably terrible as a singer in this movie. As much as I thoroughly hate Liv is, that's the one criticism I've heard that I don't super get on board with. Like, he hit the notes he enunciated. I don't really care. I don't, maybe he doesn't have the voice of an angel, but I, like, I understood what he was singing. Yeah. Well, I understood him. I just... I don't know. Compared to everyone else around him, he stuck out. Like he was he has a singing really soft voice. Yeah, his style is very different than everyone else. He's not playing for the back of the room. Uh, it's more the singing is quote more intimate, but there's also a sameness to it. Uh, like there's not as much variety. Uh, say what you will about Hugh Jackman, the Wolverine. Um, I guess it's impress impressive that he can, you know, do this as easily as he does Wolverine or a movie like The Fountain. Again, it suggests a real versatility in Hugh Jackman as an actor. Um, I don't think it would be an easy role to play, and I think he probably does really well at it. But uh, I just didn't care about him or about anything. What's 
Here's a great question for you. What's the point of this story? What if are we to take from the story? I would maybe like the movie. There isn't one. Again, we're supposed to be focused on uh, on the Hugh Jackman character Valjean, but first he escapes from prison. Then we miss all of the character development. Then he steals a child and again avoids going to prison. By the way, that's another running theme. This guy is supposed to be some kind of paragon of morality, but he keeps like running away from the law. Which again, he broke his own parole. This is his fault. Yeah. Uh, uh, Javert, Russell Crowe, catches up to him says, okay, now you're under arrest. Uh, and then he makes up some moral excuse to not go, like, oh, I gotta take care of some people. They need me. If you arrest me now, you'll be hurting them. And then Russell Crowe says, I don't care. And then uh, Jean Valjean runs off, doesn't come back, even though he keeps promising, like, hey, I'm gonna help this person and then turn myself in. You can count on it. Um, you, you don't know me. I'm an honest guy. But he keeps running away. Again, this is supposed to be the guy that we root for. So, what's more, he takes Vante, the, the dying prostitute, she has a child, he says, oh, don't worry, I'll raise your child. He takes the child, they're on the run together, that doesn't seem like a very healthy life. We jump cut to another nine years later, for some reason. The movie starts over again, yeah. and this time I'm carrying all the emotional baggage of detesting John Valjean, because everything he does is shitty and entitled, and he externalizes blame, and I hate him. Well, and that's it. We get to this. He's on his death chair. He doesn't get a deathbed. He gets a death chair. He gets a rocking chair. And and Hathaway's character returns, and we see all this death again, right? And I couldn't help but go back to the corpse bride, right, and think, <laughs> is that is that the thesis of Les Mis? Everybody's miserable. Everybody suffers. But don't worry. Someday you will fucking die. <laughs> <laughs> Credits. That's my takeaway. <laughs> like, this seems to be the thing. Like, there's. Uh, oh yeah. By the way, we haven't even gotten to the French Revolution part of it, which is ostensibly made one of the points of the movie. Yeah. Uh, but all of that, like, like a bunch of teenage boys set up a, a revolt against the police for reasons that I'm not really on. Like, like I haven't really been shown emotionally there sure there certainly are a lot of 99 percenters that are poor but it does a really bad job of translating these young wealthy healthy looking boys as being the oppressed yeah these kids set up a revolution they all get killed yeah. uh for nothing and in the end of the movie is kind of like maybe they inspired more people but i don't care yeah I don't care about Eddie Redmayne. I don't care about Amanda Seyfried. Although, I mean, I like to support Canadian talent, but her eyes are way too big for her head. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I have a hard time ending that. The Russell Crowe character on top of me thinking that I don't think he's that great of a singer, honestly. Uh, his character is a Klingon. Like, <laughs> basically, yeah. he's convinced himself that Jean Valjean, rightly or wrongly, is not worthy of, you know, any kind of respect. And spends his life in pursuit of proving that point correct. And that then... He does it. He, here's the thing. He only ever incidentally bumps into Jean Valjean. He keeps acting like, I've been hunting you for years. But they only bump into each other because of coincidence. And he also doesn't recognize him at first when he bumps into yeah. him at one time. But it's got to be significant into him in that when he finally decides that Jean Valjean is indeed noble and worthy of respect and love, it's not like, oh gosh, I was wrong. It's like, no, I've been wrong about everything in my life. I'm now going to kill myself in a hilariously over-the-top fashion. <laughs> yep. 
man. He jumps off <laughs> a bridge. Like, he jumps off a bridge. And Onto hits, a raging, on like, waterfall or something. Yeah. But there's, like, a concrete embankment on the edge of the fall, which just completely shatters him. And there's, like, this, like, <laughs> wily Coyote sound effect when he hits it. It's, like... <laughs> I laughed. I genuinely laughed out loud when it happened, and I guarantee you that is not what they were going for. <laughs> no, I uh, do not like Les Mis, and no, I would not recommend Les Mis. I could say that the director tried, and it was an interesting approach to take on making a musical, but I think that the gritty, realistic style is utterly, utterly you know, incongruous with the artifice of the musical, right? I would almost have gone the complete other direction and have like the explosions be clearly foam blocks and the uh, the rifles, yeah. you know, and actually yeah. go the other way and, and, and embrace the artifice of where it came from. That might be a better way to go, but the real world does not mesh with let's sing as we die our miserable deaths of the prostitute. And then take some creative license to cut some shit out. Please. Because there is two... Almost every single song in this movie is four minutes of a character explaining what just happened. Yeah. They'll show us... This, like, there's these two characters, one of the revolutionaries and this girl. She has a crush on him. He doesn't think that she likes him in that way. So she just watches from the sidelines as he goes about, and she's super in love with him. Guess what? He falls in love for some reason with another girl, which... Uh, every part of this is stupid, but like, and then she stops the whole movie to sing about it for four minutes. And there's like so many moments like that. There's at least 10. And when you consider 10 sets of four minutes, this movie could have been 40 minutes short. <laughs> that love triangle, by the way, I had lots of time to, uh, my mind to be distracted, gave me a lot of, uh, feels for Starship Troopers. It was totally the same love dynamic of the Starship Troopers. These two people were together, but the, the fate was conspiring to keep them apart. So he got together with another girl, and she died saving him. <laughs> and then he gets to go back to the other girl. It's the best of both worlds. <laughs> I'm sorry if I spoiled Les Mis for you guys, by the way, but fuck it. Spoilers, <laughs> don't watch it. It's exactly. stupid. I hate it. Uh, we've gone almost 20 minutes. Is there anything else you want to say? Is there, you want to get this off your chest? This is your opportunity. Don't, don't tell me. How are you going to be a revolutionary if you're such a traditionalist? You're holding on to the past, but jazz is about the future. Yes, you are. Maybe I'm not. It's like a pipe dream. This is the dream. It's conflict and it's compromise. It's very, very exciting. Oscar Darlings of 2016. People liked it so much that they actually claimed it to be the best picture of the year before it was oopsed out of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this is a charming musical romantic comedy, I guess, um, from the director of Whiplash. 
Whiplash is a movie that I love. La La Land is a movie that I like. <laughs> um, it's a definitely very, very consciously throwback tribute to musicals of old, while quite comfortably, I think, still using modern technology. I, I was quite sort of struck by the opening number on the freeway with all the cars in deadlock and they did the entire dance number like Birdman style so the whole thing looked like it was one shot it clearly wasn't they used some tricks there but it was very impressively mounted and it was a pretty seamless I think uh, marriage of old and news uh, style old and new sort of filming styles they paid tribute to the old but they are showing us where we've come to and in the background we have a terribly charming romance with two terribly charming leads and uh, of this sort of passionate dissertation on the importance of chasing one's dreams and the magic that life can present. And it's really well-intentioned, it's really warm-hearted, and I think I might have got some cavities while I watched it. It's one of these movies, musical Oscar bait movies, like that I think was so designed to win Oscars that it was more about winning Oscars than it was about making this movie. They still came up with a really charming movie, don't get me wrong, but there's something about, and Birdman's guilty of this too, this sort of uh, the creative impulse, the magic of Hollywood, patting ourselves on the back, you know? Uh, Hollywood always loves movies that talk about how fucking amazing Hollywood is. <laughs> and La La Land is a love letter to Hollywood. And it's a fairly charming one, you know? Emma Stone really actually surprised me at the, the level of the acting that she brought to it. It wasn't about the singing and dancing to me. I think her audition scenes, I think, are really, really strong. And, of course, uh, our Canadian boy, Lars and the Real Girl, <laughs> Ryan Gosling. Um, I think, similar like I was saying with Russell Crowe, I don't think he sucks. I think that he's just not a singer, but he's good enough of a performer that he gets through it. I think he does well enough. But I wasn't. I was less blown away by he than I was by uh, the the female lead. But for the most part, the movie's charming, and it put a smile on my face, and that's enough for me to say, sure, watch La La Land if that's your jam. I don't know it, when or if I would have got around to watching the movie if not for this podcast. So I guess I will say thank you to that. It's charming, harmless, but I think maybe more forgettable than people have been been selling it. That's where I start anyway. I normally get suspicious whenever something gets critical, not critical acclaim, universal acclaim. Yeah. When everyone comes out and goes, this is the greatest thing ever. Yeah, I can almost guarantee that it's not. Yeah. Uh, I went into La La Land and I came out thinking it was the greatest thing ever. And I still do. <laughs> nice. As much as I hate Les Mis, I love <laughs> La La Land. I think it nails every element so thoroughly that uh, like it's just... It's it's so good. Um, I I I enjoy I actively enjoy every moment of every scene in this movie. Uh, the one like I have like one complaint, which is during the final audition scene for Emma Stone, her piece there is the part that was a stretch too far for the masturbatory uh, go Hollywood for me. Um, as earnest as it was playing itself, it felt like that piece was the, hey guys, we are important. Uh, and it was the first and only time in the movie that it really felt like that was being done for Hollywood's sake and not for mine. 
Everything else, I have no complaints over. And it, it's just, I, I love it. It's so good. It, all these things that we've talked about for all these other movies of you can't have two leads just love each other just because. You can't have songs that just explain what just happened. You can't have a thing that should be done on a play uh, or on a stage uh, for a play. Um, you need to make sure that you're keeping in mind that this is a movie. All of those things La La Land doesn't trip up whatsoever on. All the songs uh, provide forward momentum. When it doesn't, there aren't songs. The, like, this is a very conservative musical. Of course, Bride was kind of like this too. But La La Land has like five songs in it. Yeah. It isn't actually. It's definitely not Les Mis, where every moment of every word is being it's sung. It's not operatic. The songs come up and then they go as they are needed. Um, I really say what you will about the singing. I enjoyed the acting. I thought that Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. Uh, their characters are so endearing and so full-featured and so natural with each other that I like it sets the bar so much higher than a lot of other movies for me. I, I can't watch freaking across the universe be like, oh, that blonde over there, I guess I love her. Mm-hmm. After seeing uh, Mia, Emma Stone's character, and Sebastian, Ryan Gosling's character, get mad at each other on a freeway, interact a little bit she comes she comes in on him while he's getting fired he blows past her they meet again at a, at a party they kind of tease each other then they have a like they can't admit that they like each other it's so charming and natural it just pulls me in all the way it's one of those chemistry things too i mean they're both by themselves really good actors but if they didn't have a good vibe it wouldn't be the same thing and they clearly vibe very well but it's interesting for me, what I really loved about the movie was, I mean, I like the music numbers fine, but I loved how much Ryan Gosling characters love jazz. Like, it's not the, it's not a little thing to him. He loves jazz and she... He likes jazz the way we like movies. Yeah. And uh, she sort of starts to appreciate jazz more just because he does. Uh, he takes his art very seriously, and she is similarly passionate about this 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 drive to be an actress. But uh, this is where we get into the what I think is a little bit saccharine about the movie, and a little bit uh, unacknowledged by this type of movie. That for every rags to riches story, for every one of these actors who manage to open their own jazz or musicians who open their own jazz clubs, or actresses who manage to hit it big. There are literally thousands of actors who starve or have to just make their day job their career, right? Uh, this yep. is not pretending to be real world, but it's about as far from the real world as any of the movies that we've watched. <laughs> but sure. it's hard I mean, not to be charmed to be by the optimism of the movie. Like, I think if you were to just say this movie's bullshit and walk away from it, then you probably need to see a therapist. Like, all this movie wants to do is put a smile on your face. That's all its real goal is, like, and win Oscars. But put a smile on your face and win Oscars. Suck some Hollywood dick, you know? But uh, it's, it's totally, and it's really good at doing that. But I honestly think it's the character beats. It's that first audition with Emma Stone and the chick takes a phone call. While she's giving this audition, right? It's it, it it is him talking about 
how what we're watching here is not just a jazz performance. This is life and death stuff. This is alive. This is this performance we're watching will never be repeated. It's for us and it's right now and we should respect it. Like I love how much they love art because I love art that much. I just wish I lived in their world where loving it was enough. And it's interesting uh, because we're watching this movie made by and played by people that did love their way into being successful. And, and I think like the movie pays lip service definitely to there's a lot of people that don't make it and you're not owed your success. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know how to transition to this. But once they do make it, I did, I just transitioned to it. Once they do make it, the movie ends in such a perfect way. Uh, The last eight minutes of this movie is better than any other segment of eight minutes of any of the other movies, I think. It's a real challenging thing when you write a love story because there's this big question of, like, do they get together or don't they? And if they do, is it earned? Like, Like, all that. Spoilers... Um, they don't wind up together. They end up uh, chasing their dreams uh, at the expense of the relationship. And the end of the movie delivers the fan fiction that everyone always puts in their head after watching a movie like this. Like, oh, well, I wish they could have been together. It shows what that would have looked like. And A, it's nice, it's cathartic because you get to see it. But B, it also highlights that for them to be together, one of them would have had to give up their dream. And that's not what this movie is about. Um, well, and I, I wanted to talk about that because uh, there's the same thing in one of the sub-stories in Across the Universe, right? What is the big conflict in their relationship? Why is it oh, that wait, they wait, can't wait, be together? In Across the Universe? Well, it, well, it's touched on in both, but he, he compromises his dream and she is sort of vaguely disgusted by that. And he kind of blames her for his compromise, right? And similarly, in, in Across the Universe, the, the, I can't remember the characters' names because I care so little about the characters. Jude movie. and Lucy. But the, they had the band that was getting really successful, but she, he was writing the music, but she became really successful and became the front woman of the band and kind of the thing. And that resentment killed the relationship for a while. Uh, Sadie and Jojo. Yeah, but it's, it's a weirdly petty thing mm. to, to kill the relationship considering, you know, how much time is spent building it. Uh, and uh, it does kill the I mean the thing that kill kills the relationship is that he doesn't go to her one woman show but the ironic thing is that she would have never written the one woman show had she not met him right and that's the the thing is that like things get strained Um, but in this movie when things get strained it feels a lot more natural than the straining in other love movies not just the other six but like any other love movie normally what happens is sitcom effect where people just don't talk about it and they're like oh i caught you with another woman oh it's not what it looks like it's actually my sister was helping me uh uh, you know whatever put on this shirt or something it's a romantic Um, misunderstanding you guys talked about it it would fix it la la land doesn't do that they talk about it it highlights the stress in their relationship which they're forced into because again he took this job that he's like whether he likes it or not he compromised and he sold his soul and him costing his soul means that he can't be there as much as he wants and then when she hits her low moment after they've had a fight it's just too much for them or uh, too much for her rather uh and all of that played out really naturally to me it just it felt so unforced mm, i like this movie a lot i I like it too i I just like i I just 
take it as that. It's not in the real world because, like I said, for a jazz musician, something as specific as a jazz pianist, a paying gig is a paying gig. Us mm-hmm. schlubs in the real world who have to eat every day and don't look like Ryan Gosling, you know, <laughs> that's not a career compromise. That's a paying gig. If you're getting paid to play music, consider it a win. I said the same thing about acting, you know. Uh, there's a great movie called The Real Blonde where the Matthew Modine character is like all skeptical about doing a soap. I don't know if I'd want to do a soap. You know what? If you're getting paid to act, you are winning. Soaps mm-hmm are big money it may have a stigma to it but a paying acting gig is a paying acting gig and there's something in this movie and a little bit in some of the other movies just to notice it as a sub theme that somehow compromising your dream is this great sin and you know people don't compromise because they have to you know or because people compromise because they have to because they have to live and in this movie everybody's bases just seem to be covered you know? And, and I, I would disagree with that because I thought the point of the Ryan Gosling character was that he refuses to compromise no matter what. Like, he will not compromise. And he gets fired everyone over else it. sees yeah. how untenable that is. And he learns, uh, just through osmosis, he learns compromise from Mia. Yeah. Uh, she says, hey, maybe name your jazz, your future fantasy jazz club, name it something a little bit more approachable than chicken on a stick. He's like, nah, can't do that. But ultimately, he does. Uh, he he would never work with John Legend, uh, who, watching the movie the first time, it implies that there's something about that character that's like, like he's secretly a Sold dick or something like or that. Something, yeah. But but rewatching it, it really seems like it's it's uh, it's um, Ryan Gosling's character who's in the wrong. Like he just doesn't like this guy because he represents what he doesn't like, not because there's anything about the John Legend character that's oh, actually a negative. He offered a friend a job. He, he knew he yeah. was a musician. He knew he needed a gig. As far as I'm concerned, no harm, no foul there. Right. And it, it, it's it's because of the character flaws of Sebastian, of Ryan Gosling's character, that he turns it down initially. Um, but he looked like he... he he hears Mia uh, trying to defend him to her mother over the phone, and he it's kind of the first time, because it's once removed, that he understands how he looks to the outside world, and he, he, and he goes, between Mia and this gig, like, if I had to keep riding free like I do, or keep me... Mia, but compromise on this gig, what should I do? And, and like he doesn't ask her about it. Mm-hmm. He just kind of Does interprets it. that and causes problems later. But it's his first step to compromise. And it's a good for him. It is good for his character. It it leads to... That gig specifically leads to uh, troubles in their relationship. But uh, it also means that by the end of the movie, Ryan Gosling's character has his own fantasy jazz club. Yeah. Yeah, and again, like uh, I'm not, I'm just pulling threads because I can. I, I think it's a perfectly fine movie. I'm, I think obviously you like it more than I do. Uh, yes. I do think it's just it's one of these things that I noticed, especially in, in in these Oscar, and they don't have to be musicals. If you're making a movie about actors acting or about the struggle to be a creative person in Hollywood, I think there you gotta you gotta earn it. This movie earns it with more about with its charm than with its honesty. But it's got a lot of charm. It does. Good enough? Yeah.
your cat is casually uh, licking her private parts over your shoulder right now. <laughs> it's very distracting. <laughs> um, but we'll focus away from that, and we'll focus on these six movies. What was your least favorite of these six musicals, and why? Rewatching these movies, I was a little bit scared, because I actually had a really solid idea of what was going to be my last. And um, Across the Universe turned out to be a lot worse than I remembered it. But Les Mis pulled it off. I hate Les Mis so much. It just, like, for all the flaws, the greatest flaw that it has is it just doesn't end. Yeah. So some of these movies, I would say, as far as, like, production flaws, might have lower lows. But, man, if Les Mis just doesn't keep going on yeah. and on and on. And I detest that. Yeah, the way people heap praise on that movie, you'd think the whole movie was just Anne Hathaway's scene. <laughs> like, <laughs> but no, there's two hours and 30 minutes around that scene. <laughs> All right, well, what's number five then? Across the Universe. Mm -hmm. it, it, close but no cigar. I Again, it's just too disjointed, too... Uh, too focused on trying to honor the Beatles that it doesn't work as a movie or as an homage to the Beatles. Uh, again, we've said this several times, but just listen to the soundtrack and you get all the value that you would get out of watching the movie, essentially. It's pretty. It has some interesting choreography, but it doesn't pull me along where it counts enough to have those matter. Yeah. She is such a gifted visual director. I remember seeing the trailer for that in a theater and getting chills. Like, I just thinking, like, that movie's going to be amazing. <laughs> alas. Mm -hmm. Alas. In fourth place? This is going to hurt your feelings a little bit, but I put Corpse Bride. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's a perfectly fine movie. Uh, it has style like none of these other movies except for La La Land. Um, it, it's, it's good. It's solid. It's a little bit basic for my taste. Um, and I enjoy it. I think I want to watch it again with maybe some friends. Like, like I feel like next time someone's like, hey, let's watch Nightmare Before Christmas. That'd be cool. I'm going to be like, hold up. Let's or, watch Corpse Bride instead. Mm -hmm. um, or both. It'll but, take you three hours <laughs> to watch both of those movies. Yeah, watch both. There we go. Uh, yeah, next time someone says, let's watch Les Mis, I'll be like, or we can watch Corpse Bride and Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> with um, an intermission. <laughs> but yeah, I don't have... Uh, I have good things to say about it. I don't have a lot of bad things to say about it, but I feel like the negatives are more flat than they are, uh, you know, noteworthy. And there's enough flat for me that it came in the middle. Okay. Fair enough. The top Next half up. of your list. Moulin Rouge. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I got it. Like, I... As much as I just criticized Across the Universe for not having the story stuff down right enough for me to be engaged, I feel like the world of Moulin Rouge is the thing that I get sucked into, not the characters, and it keeps me sucked in. It is a ride. It is very uh, <laughs> energetic about itself. It is very flat with the character depth and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, I think they do perfectly good honor uh, to the music that they use, to the style that they're going for, and they give the actors enough to chew on that I am entertained. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> <laughs> 
So anyone doing mental math will be able to count these cards and figure out what's next. But Into the Woods mm -hmm. is my second pick. Uh, I I enjoyed it more than I expected. I, again, am more uh, impressed, if than anything else, that he pulled off such a stellar third act. Um, and I, much like with Moulin Rouge, I find the characters endearing and entertaining, and I enjoy watching them do their thing, even when the story lags, which it does at certain points. Yeah. Um, for a movie about, or sorry, for an episode about musicals, I actually don't remember many, many of the songs uh, from Into the Woods. Right. Um, I would it, say that about most of the movies. I don't remember a lot of the songs at La La Land, to be honest. I remember the I production numbers. I can see their uh, silhouettes dancing across the stars. I can see them dancing on the highway. I've only seen the movie once, to be fair. But yeah. I, I don't I don't have one of those songs stuck in my head. I watched musicals for the last couple of weeks, and I, I, I didn't have any songs particularly locked in. Inversely, if you showed me a muted scene of La La Land, I could whistle whatever the music is at any given moment. I couldn't do that for Into the Woods, but I still had enough fun with it that it kept me engaged. And then it rewarded me at the end, which again, is a rare occurrence in, in cinema. Yeah, it paid off. All right. So, so I so know what your number one is then. <laughs> La La Land. For sure. This I... So last time, not last time, the first time we had a discussion, it was the Batmans and the Spider-Mans. And I said that Dark Knight is my favorite movie of all time and that I would put it up against other movies as one of the best movies of all time. And you accuse me of hyperbole. Right. And I come here to you today saying La La Land is my second favorite film of all time. <laughs> and I would put it up against most other movies as one of the best films of all time. So if you had to I... choose on a desert island to take Dark Knight or La La Land with you... So... Uh, ultimately, like I would still pick Dark Knight. I think it has just a little more depth to it. But this isn't—we, the Dark Knight's not one of the six, so I can give all all the praise I want. That's right. Um, I I think it is a mastery of the craft through the acting, the music, the cinematography. It's one of the most colorful films I've ever seen. And for some reason, we're still in a period where color seems to be faux pas in Hollywood. Right. Everything seems to be just a little too desaturated. Or else it's literally an animated kids movie. La La Land embraces the color, it embraces the musical, it embraces the characters. I love every element of La La Land. It is a thoroughly fantastic movie. Alright. Well, we have fairly dis different lists, but that's not necessarily a surprise. Uh, we're not going 0 for 6, we're not going 6 for 6, but I still appreciate you being here, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, number six is definitely Moulin Rouge for me. Look, uh, I know <clears throat> I carry my own personal baggage, but it's just Baz Luhrmann is this, like, great artiste to so many people that I feel like he could fully shit his pants in the middle of a Hollywood party and no one would point it out to him. I just, like, <laughs> it's okay because Baz Luhrmann did it. I, I don't I don't know. It was not for me. I found it aggravating. I found the style like so aggressive that it became a nauseating experience. So uh, I am not a fan of, of Moulin Rouge. And uh, I don't like using the word hate, but I, I was talking to my wife about it after I rewatched it for the podcast. And I was like, I think I really hate Moulin Rouge. It's weird <laughs> to hate a movie. Again, it's wasted energy to hate a movie, but 
I hate a movie, and it's called Moulin Rouge. That and Boondog Saints. I now hate two movies. You hate Boondog Saints? I oh, hate. Oh no, is Boondog Saints not as good as I remember it? I hate Boondog Saints. But that's a discussion for another day. In fifth place, I will rejoin you in the hate train for Les Miserables. Yes. Two hours and 36 minutes of repetitive... Both stylistically, like I said, start with a big sweeping scene, establish the shots, then get right into the people's grill while they sing at you, and then back the camera out so we can get out of this scene and into the next one, and repeat it for two and a half hours in a story that is admittedly star-studded, but not that engaging. Not a toe-tapping song to be found in it. And again, if there is a moral of the story, I hope it isn't, it'll be better when we're dead, but that's basically what I came out with. We struggle on. Isn't it inspirational? <laughs> it, it works on a very meta level of saying it'll be better when you're dead. Because, man, I wish I was dead while watching it. Yeah, well, like, I did a play when I was in university about homeless people being abused. And they, they had this, like, Fisher King sequence, which is really cheesy, where the two homeless people are dancing together. And all of a sudden it becomes really beautiful and noble and la, 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 la. And I remember thinking, doing that scene, man, this feels a little bit, ugh. The whole movie feels a little bit ish to me. Like, I don't know. I would take the misery uh, more seriously if I thought they were. But they kept on singing. All the way in fourth place, I put Across the Universe, and I think the music went a long ways to salvage that. And if I said it's more a series of music videos than it is a movie, there's some pretty fucking cool music videos in there. But just sitting and watching two hours of music videos is... It's it's like a, a sketch show or something like that. You can go with sketches for a good hour or so, but eventually you need a story to follow or else it just feels like you're never getting anywhere. Across the Universe never really gets anywhere, but it's really pretty while it's not getting anywhere. <laughs> and there's some <laughs> catchy songs. So it fought its way to fourth. I'm a Julie Taymor apologist, though I think she's very visually strong. I'll, I'll watch a movie that she directs. Okay, so getting a little more controversial. All the way in third place, I put Into the Woods. I, I think it overperformed for me. I kind of went in with my arms folded and like, okay, it's a Disney musical about fairy tales. This should be easy and uncomplicated. And I was surprised at the direction it went to. I, 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 liked, I, I liked the darkness and the peace. And I guess, I don't, I'm not a real musical fan, but between this and the... The Demon Barber, I guess I'm a Sondheim fan. I found out <laughs> through this musical <laughs> research. So Into the Woods, yeah. In second place, I'm giving it to The Corpse Bride. <laughs> and uh, one half because I'm a big fan of Tim Burton, and one half because this is my kind of jam for a musical. I like that it's animated. I like that it's short. I like that it's telling an efficient story. And it doesn't overstay its welcome. It, it's a nice, neat little package. Of all the movies on the list, I think this is the one that I'll probably come back to the most often. Strange but true. And number one is La La Land. I mean, yeah, it was desperately trying to get Oscars, and yeah, it was sort of kissing Hollywood's ring in, in a really good way. Like, Hollywood is wonderful. Anybody who dreams of being in Hollywood is wonderful. And the Hollywood dream is wonderful, and let's all bathe in the wonderful wonderfulness of its wonderfulness. <laughs> and yeah... <laughs> Yeah, I get it, I get it, and yeah, it's a little bit masturbatory and self-congratulatory, but 
it's super charming. It's super beautiful. I mean, it's uh, that that song and dance number that they did at Magic Hour as the sun was going down. They actually shot it at Magic Hour. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't digitally thrown in there. It would have been easy to do that, but they went old school, and uh, it's charming. There's a lot of stuff like that in La La Land. There, uh, one thing I noticed uh, right off the bat is that it's almost all practically lit. Like, it's almost all lamps on the tables and things like that. And they will manually dim them to change the scene or change the tone. And it feels like a stage play. But unlike Les Mis, it's done in a very cinematic way that helps with the feeling of the, of the movie itself. And it embraces the fact that you're watching a film and a cinematic piece. The marriage of the old and the new. And in a way to forgive the Ashok Shucks optimism, the director of the movie, whose name is currently escaping my head, uh, oh, he, did Whiplash, he did Whiplash just before it. He's done two films. He's 31 years old. And uh, his first film got nominated for Best Actor, Best Original Screenplay, and his second one got nominated for Best Picture. So if there's anybody who's going to Very make, nearly won it. Yeah, <laughs> very nearly won it. But if there's anybody who, I guess, has the right to make a movie about how ah shucks and magical Hollywood is, it's him. So yes, La La Land is number one. I really wasn't fighting you on that, Eric. I, 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 I liked it fine. I think I just, because of the cynical bastard I am, I liked it a little less than you did. But we agreed more than I, I was worried. I was worried we were going to walk away yeah. and you were going to be like, you know what? Your bullshit, your podcast is bullshit. No, I'm really glad that the uh, Les Mis twist landed because everyone loves that movie so much. Nope. Like, I just hate every single thing about it. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to go celebrate my son's 14th birthday, if you can believe that shit. But uh, hopefully we'll have you back again. I know you guys got your own lives to live, but uh, I I'm always hungry for, for fresh meat on R&R. &R. Uh, invitation to you and your wife, please. I'll, have I'll pass it along. I, I really love doing these. I'll, uh, I'll keep you in the loop. I bet I made some people angry there. Oh, there's people that are just furious. And you know what? You have a means to let me know what you think. Tell me how wrong I am about Moulin Rouge. Convince me. Write me at rankinreview at gmail.com. R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W. And let me know. Thank you so much for putting up with a different themed episode of Rank and Review. I hope you stick with us for more. I hope you tell your friends about the podcast. I hope you check out the website at rankandreview.ca. Uh, it's looking really nice these days, I think. And as always, just thank you for supporting Rank and Review. Thank you for listening to my show. And uh, I drop every other Wednesday. And we'll talk to you soon.